This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You'll find the full episode available for purchase in the music section of the iTunes store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store. For unlimited access to our back catalog, you can become a PEL citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash membership. Membership also includes access to discussion groups with other listeners, as well as ad-free versions of current episodes and a host of other bonus content, all available from a single, convenient feed that you can use with a variety of podcast apps. listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 38 is, how do mathematical concepts like number relate to the real world? We read Bertrand Russell's book from 1919, Introduction to Mathematical Philosophy, chapters 1 through 3 and 13 through 18. Read along with us at partiallyexaminedlife.com. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer, existing in a series of discrete time segments in Madison, Wisconsin. This is uh, Wes Allen obeying the theory of types in Boston, Massachusetts. This is Josh Pelton, an individual member of a set of uh, inhabitants of Long Island, New York. All right, so we are without a Seth today. We are, it's Team West today. And Josh, why are you here, Josh? I'm here because I'm masquerading as some sort of expert or person who is knowledgeable about mathematics. For some reason, these guys think that mechanical engineer has some sort of insight into what numbers are. Let me clarify. We don't necessarily, for our guests, find experts. We find people who are interested. That's our only expertise in some of these areas. Oh, well, I'm an absolute expert in being interested about things. (laughs) The only background that you might need to have for this episode, which reminds me that we should do the the rules, but in one second, is... uh, Bertrand Russell is the guy we most recently talked about in our Frege episode just a couple back. So if you really want to understand everything that's going on here, go back and listen to the Frege episode. But as usual, we will attempt to explain what needs explaining when it comes up. But let's do the rules. Josh, I thought you had some alternate version of at least one of the rules. I do have alternate versions for two of the rules. You guys are going to have to remind me of the third one. In the Russell style, first rule for the class of Partially Examined Life Podcasters and Guest P., and the class of all philosophical knowledge S for any X in P and any Y in S, the statement Y presupposes knowledge of S is always false. And uh, for any philosopher N in the class of philosophers A, the statement X name drops N is always false. Yes. So once again, we have someone presenting the rule and violating it at the same time because we are assuming that the audience can make sense. Oh, and that's, of, that's the one that I forgot is that we're not going to assume that they actually read the text. That's actually just part of the... Uh, oh, it's a right? subset? We're trying not to assume... Yes, exactly. That audience <laughs> has read what we're talking about, or as any other background in philosophy, the name-dropping thing. For instance, do you have an example? For name-dropping, well, if you had just read the entirety of uh, Goodall's Incompleteness Theorem Proof, then you would understand why this works. That's right. And uh, number three, we will be rigorous and exact in all that we say, except when doing so would be offensively tedious. Well, considering that we just read Russell and he's kind of set the bar for what rigor is, I think that and tedium. we may have to appeal to the tedium rule or tedium exception. Really? Did you object? I thought this was a for a mathematics text. Okay, so I know people, for instance, Seth, 
who is not here today, not because he is uh, totally offended by the topic, but for scheduling reasons. But actually, I thought he was not going to be around for this. And so I scheduled this topic then on purpose because this is one that he expressed less enthusiasm for. I would assume a lot of our listenership is probably similarly math phobic or uh, at least does not find it interesting enough. But this, the thing that back into school days that I didn't like about math was just the repetitive nature of the calculations. But all the conceptual stuff I liked, and this is all conceptual, so I had no problem with this. It's actually interesting. I just finished reading sort of a rant from a mathematics professor at Cornell or MIT or something. I can't really remember where he's from, but he was saying how we don't really teach mathematics in school. We teach just this by rote calculation of crap, really. Why do I care what this angle is? Why should I care what X is? What am I solving for? They just teach you to push around symbols and stuff and they don't really give you any conception of math is supposed to be a joyous exploration of ideas and sort of the realm of pure thought and such so he was kind of ranting about how nobody ever really did any mathematics until they got to college and it's only then when they really realized that it was something that you could enjoy which is exactly when i stopped taking math (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's interesting you know you study calculus and i i remember because i was in such a good student in high school but i didn't know what it meant really and um i didn't explore what it meant then i went to a college where we studied calculus by reading newton's principia which is basically he's developing it as he's applying it and then sort of getting at the philosophy of it did you have to read it in latin no that would be uh (laughs) that would be uh, it's already brutal that would be impressive i would have to give you props for that and you had to read euclid and stuff so as part of a well-rounded Great books sort of education, as was given at St. John's, your undergrad. Yeah. That we so often talk about. So, yeah, but I do remember as an elementary school student learning my times tables and wondering what the set theoretic foundations of it all were. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently that was attempted. I was listening to some other podcast, a recent episode on the new math. In the, I guess, early 70s, that was a bunch of mathematics professors deciding that they should actually teach grade school kids set theory and things. And that the result of that was them not understanding the complex stuff and not learning the basics either. And so it was a wash. Yeah, it's kind of hilarious. Every 20 years or so, some high-level mathematics professors get this bright idea to teach third and fourth graders some not super advanced theory, but just a different kind of curriculum, a different way of teaching them the uh, math curriculum. And uh, my mother was actually part of one of those experiments. And she still has trouble to this day because she was taught how to add, subtract, multiply, and divide in base 8 instead of base 10. Oh my god. So she'll regularly go to the supermarket and is like, oh, this is a buck 20. And, uh, you know, 50% off. And she says, oh, that's 40 cents. Uh, no. Yes, there, there exists a base such that what you're saying is true. But yeah. Really, if you teach, uh, one of the big differences is teaching people how to prove things in mathematics is much different than teaching them what you're generally taught, because it's a much different mindset. So it's one of the things I got at St. John's. You're given a proposition and you're asked to prove it, whether it's in geometry or something else. And then at the University of Texas, I TA'd for, I think you had to do this too, Mark, right? For the logic and set theory class, the symbolic logic class, where I became pretty adept at doing any of the symbolic logic proofs because I had to teach it to uh, the students and grade their proofs. I did that, but I can't say I retained any of it. (laughs) Yeah, I can't say how much I've retained either. But I do remember getting the point where I was reading people's proofs like they were English practically, just like gliding through them. Yeah, that's a pleasurable part of the math-related field. However, there's still the question of, even if reading about especially high-level math is interesting in itself, what is the philosophical point? Mathematics professors sort of 
for the most part, seem to see this as a self-contained, pure land of numbers or numbers and related expressions. And so what's the point? And uh, I don't know if Russell and Frege here are giving us a philosophical point, but at least they're relating it to something else, right? So there are the logicists that we talked about on the Frege episode, his uh, Begriffschrift, his attempt to ground all proofs in math systematically by reducing the moves in math to moves in logic. So math becomes one special case of uh, logic. Yeah, and I know that Russell talks a little bit about how it's been sort of a gradual convergent evolution of logic and mathematics. Mathematics is logic and that there's no real differentiation to be made between the two. Yes. Yeah, I think it begins with Leibniz historically. I mean, arguably, you could go back farther. Yeah, he's, I think that is actually a really awesome quote on uh, 195. He says, mathematics is the manhood of logic. Hmm. He's a mathematician, so I'm certain that there are some logicians I would have the reverse opinion about that. And I guess he points out that they have very different historical origins, that logic is typically seen, I guess, as an abstraction from thought. It's more or less how people think. And we already talked about in the Frank episode how he was against that psychologism of logic. That's no, it's not how people actually think at all. It's normative rules for how we should think. Whereas with math, we go way back to Pythagoras and other folks that are thinking of numbers as some part of a realm of entities more perfect than those that we encounter in our experience. They are not abstractions. And of course, uh, Plato spent some time among the Pythagoreans. And so the thing that he is notorious for, his otherworldly world of forms, is really a generalization of this Pythagorean view of numbers, that there's not only the perfect numbers, but there's the perfect uh, justice and everything else. So that alone justifies studying the philosophy of math. However, I was a little hard put to come up with what the question is for this, because even though the question was how do mathematical concepts like number relate to the real world, Russell, he's giving an answer to that in producing math to logic. Logic is supposed to be in some way more ordinary. And he seems to think that logic is abstracted from real things we encounter. And in fact, one of the main points in the chapters that we discuss is how the concept of number itself is supposed to refer to in an indirect way to real things in the world. So, you know, if we lived in a world with no real things or with only four real things, that would produce problems for this uh, theory of numbers. But at the same time, he doesn't really focus on that ontological question very directly, at least very much in here. He leaves it open right in the end, the ontological status of sets, right? He refuses to affirm or deny. He talks a little bit about Leibniz's view and how Leibniz's proofs about the nature of mathematics and reality and stuff. He's assuming that there's no such thing as a true identity. You can have one thing, but there can be no other thing that's exactly that thing. And Russell pulls a, a standard mathematician. He just says, well, of course, there can be two things that are exactly the same thing, just not in our reality. You have to think more generally than the real world. Yes. So we're going to get only an abstruse, if any, answer to the question that I posed. But I wasn't sure what other philosophical question is being directly addressed. And the real reason for reading this, let's just give the little background. So this is a shortened version. This introduction to mathematical philosophy is an easy-to-read version explicitly for people with uh, no facility for symbolic language, I think is what he says about it. Version of his more famous Principia Mathematica that he wrote with uh, Albert North Whitehead. That's the famous book. And I was never forced to read any portion of that or really even read much about that in graduate school and felt like in our quest for 
thoroughness, <laughs> given how influential it was, uh, I wanted to take a look at it in some way. And this seemed the most painless way to do it. This was, a, I think, a great training for, I mean, if you do want to read sort of advanced stuff in analytic philosophy, a whole group of people, Carnap is another example that comes to mind, a guy we've talked about once or twice on this podcast, that I think if you're not using symbolic logic in your philosophy articles, you are not being serious. You're not doing real philosophy. Yeah. So there's a whole chapter in here that's really just a, a text-heavy and symbol-light introduction to symbolic logic. You know, the and and the or symbol and the if-then symbol are for all that. We tried a little bit to explain this on the Frega podcast, and I have had some blog posts about it. So it, I think it's a really painless way to be introduced to that. And not only does he introduce these things, but then he uses them pretty immediately. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like again and again and again in different proofs, that kind of remembering by use repetition but he uh, tries to derive some substantial conclusions out of it. It's not just, here are the symbols, and now you know how to make nice-looking truth tables or something like that, and you still mm -hmm. don't know why the fuck you would ever want to do that. <laughs> or at the very least, we can say, oh, well, when you're writing your arguments, to really prove to somebody that you're right, you should break it down in this symbolic form and say, these are my two premises, and see how they validly lead to the conclusion that I want you to draw and then talk about how the supremacies are supported. I mean, that's the way we presented it as TAs in philosophy classes. But frankly, that's a load of crap as far as practical. <laughs> Don't you think, Wes? I mean, do you ever feel like you need to do that? <laughs> yes, utility is, is overhyped. You're talking about the use of formal symbols and... Yes. I would feel philosophically illiterate if I didn't know what modus ponens was, right? The rule <laughs> that says, if A, then B, and the yeah. second premise is A, and the conclusion is B. I feel so educated knowing that Latin phrase. But at the same time, I wouldn't explicitly refer to that. I guess it's just a matter that you need to study this stuff because it gets your mind orderly, and that'll make you a better philosopher and not just go preaching mystical bullshit. It is very clean. And one thing that symbolic logic does that just regular language doesn't do is it has a very grounded set of rules. If you're just using regular language, then there's homonyms and there's all these other things. You can use a word in a slightly different fashion mm -hmm. than... Mm -hmm. You actually intended, and people don't actually know what you're talking about. So I could see an argument for if you break it all the way down to the symbols, then there's no room to hide anymore. You can't hide in cushy words or arguments based on emotion or anything else like that. There's no room for anything but a rational construction of your argument. Well, it forces you to disambiguate, certainly. Although I think you can do that without the symbols. I think the symbols come in handy, are genuinely useful only when you get to very thorny problems like the one that motivates definite descriptions, the problem of false propositions and St. Anselm's proof for the existence of God, which sort of, you can't really show that that's illogical unless you get deep into this idea of quantification. It really was, I mean, Kant sort of gave the first disproof of that, but you really can't give a very, the full explanation of how it fails until you introduce a concept like quantification. But for most purposes, I don't think that you need to know about quantification and use symbols to avoid error. People were doing it long before. You know, that's a good specific that we might as well just fill out the example for a second because mm. that shows up in here. And if you looked at some of the blog posts, and I think we got into this a little on the Frege episode, that there's a fundamental distinction between sentences about individuals and general sentences where, you know, I'm saying Socrates is mortal or all men are mortal. So the two quantifiers are the all and the, the sum. And when you say some men are mortal, you're saying there exists some X such that X is a man and X is mortal. 
right? So yeah, you're actually right. affirming the existence of something. And the ontological argument, one of the arguments for the existence of God is something like, I've got this idea of God. Well, that's the Descartes version. So for St. Anselm, it's a definition, right? It's God is that which nothing greater can be conceived. It yes. does involve idea in there. You're right. That's better. If something has all the qualities of perfection, then it will include existence, because right. certainly something that exists is better than something that doesn't exist. Yeah, where perfection means better in the sense of more complete as well. Uh-huh. So to subtract existence would mean incompleteness. I mean, it's kind of similar to concerns about completeness in logic, but it fails because it doesn't... First of all, I mean, you, you'll see Russell will say outright in here, asserting existence of an individual isn't even meaningful. Mm-hmm. For Russell, making existence claims, strictly speaking, you're always doing it about an X. There exists an X such that, and then you give a description. And so here, what's being hidden is the fact that you have to make some sort of quantification claim before you give God a description, right? You have to say there exists an X such that X is blah, 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 blah. And because right. that quantification, that logical subtlety is missing, it's hard to figure out what's going on with and sounds proof until you start to talk about quantification. Since we brought it up, so Russell is saying just, well, according to my symbolization, existence is not a predicate. So you can't say, for all X, X exists, or for all X, if it has the attributes of God, then it exists. That's not a meaningful sentence. You have to say, there exists some X such that it has this properties. So either the ontological proof begs the question by just saying right off the fact, you know, in defining it, I'm saying it exists, which doesn't work. Right. Or you would have to put it using the other quantifier and saying, for all X, if X has all these properties, then that entails that right. there exists some X that it has these properties. And that's just clearly invalid. So either it's begging the question or it's invalid. But why do we buy, I mean, you said you can't meaningfully assert the existence of an individual. So you can't say Socrates exists, put the little quantification symbol for there exists some X or something, but don't put X, just put S, there exists Socrates. Right. Now, I understand why that's wrong according to the grammar of what Russell has set up, but why should we go with that? What's his justification or what justification we think of for that? The basic sense that I got from it is just a confusion of levels of description. If you're talking about men collectively, then it's a different level than talking about an individual man. This level of individuals and existence and whatnot, and also the level of descriptions of individuals and all this other stuff. He talks about this on uh, 132 in chapter 15. may correctly say men exist, meaning that X is a man is sometimes true. But if we make a pseudo-syllogism, men exist, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates exists, we are talking nonsense, since Socrates is not like men, merely an undetermined argument to a given propositional function. The right. fallacy is closely analogous to that of the argument, men are numerous, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is numerous. In this case, it is obvious that the conclusion is nonsensical. All right, well, we'll go more into, we're going to have some stuff specifically about arguments for the existence of God. So we don't have to spend too much time on this, but we're getting a flavor of the kind of way he's trying to solve philosophical problems by coming up with a clearer way of expressing what the sentences mean. And that forces, like we're saying, it forces you to disambiguate, even though, of course, there are sort of artistic reasons why you might 
want to be ambiguous, or maybe there are some things that sound ambiguous. If you actually were to fill out what you actually mean, well, you're making a fruitful play on words. One of the things I remember that Tom, our guest on the Hegel episode, was saying we we're talking about desire、mm. and how、uh, people's. Inherently, before they have rich interactions with other people, they have a very empty sense of themselves. I remember he made sort of a play on words, which I'm sure was something from the secondary literature of we're looking for content for the self, right? We're looking for the self not to be an empty definition. And when our desire is fulfilled, then we're contented. And it was sort of glossed over, and we didn't jump on it at the time. But that's exactly the kind of thing that an analytic philosopher would say. Come on, like, yeah. Really, if you're making a substantial thesis with that, you need to stop and you need to spell it out, and you need to say why it's not just an etymological coincidence. Why the word content and content look the same? Right. You know, the fact that they look the same does not freaking prove anything. And in fact, if you use a lot of language fast and loose like that. You're probably spouting bullshit, which is not to say that those sorts of things can't provide clues. You know, even if they are merely are groundless pre-association, they can lead to certain ideas, which you can then substantiate in some other ways. Yes, free association still has its purpose. It's just important not to confuse it with, you know, proof or or something like that. So let's get back to the beginning of this book, I guess, which is him establishing the concept of number. And so the first couple of chapters are just about、uh, him setting up what is a number, and I think this is just straight from Frege. And we can、uh, go back and sort of piece some of the steps together in terms of his adjustments to Peano's axioms and things, if we want. But I think the overall thrust of it was that a number gets defined. You have to define the concept of number. Remember, he's trying to define all mathematical concepts in non-mathematical terms to say math is just a special case. Of these other more general logical terms, and so he defines numbers using this kind of recursive definition. So you could look at any particular set. I mean, we can look at it now, already having the concept number and saying there are three things in this. But then, how could you come up with the concept of number from that? Is I think it's、uh, you take one object, just pick a member of the set, and then pick another member of the set, and are those two the same? Right, and if in all cases when you pick two members and they're the same, then that's how you've established one. Right? I got a different sense of it. He starts off with the set thing, and he starts off with numbers that aren't one, and he actually goes on for a little bit about how one is kind of sketchy to get to, and you have to go through this theory of types to get there. He basically says if you have a group of things, and then you can match each member of that group of things to another group of things, and then when you're done, there aren't any left on. For either of them, yes. Then you know that they are the same number, or they have this、yeah. same quality that is numberness. Right. They have a one-to-one -one correspondence. So he just talks about different sets whose members have a one-to-one -one correspondence, and that defines a group that all have something in common. And whatever that thing in common is, that's the number. So in fact, what、right. the number ends up being is the set of sets that are like that. Right. Which is similar to each other. Right. Is that the word? Yes. Yeah. Right, so the way he puts it, the number three means the set of all trios. So, in other words, the sets of all sets of things that have three numbers in it. But I can't actually say it like that because I don't want to put the number three in the definition. Right, right. So that's the trick. We have similarity, but then I thought that initially he got one out of that whole pick any two members or any two designations of a member, I should say. And if in all cases they refer to the same one, then that's one. 
And right. and you can do, just like you were saying, you can do a one-to-one correspondence. This set of one object, this one quarter in front of me, the set that includes just that thing is going to be similar. It's going to have map in a one-to-one correspondence to every other singleton set like that. And then it's just a matter of coming up with N plus one. Mm-hmm. So in other words, if you do that and you correlate one-to-one and there's still one left over, there's still something left over, then you've got N plus one. So we've got N by with this correlation. And then is there something left over? All you need is this similarity and then you need one and that gives you the whole system. Yeah, I think he says something. N plus one is the collection of all classes such that if you take away a term X, then there is a class of N terms. I'm an engineer, so I'm more into the application of numbers versus the definition and just having a reason for using certain equations and stuff. So this was really, it was tough for me to get through. I was kind of, it's just one. Just deal with it. Let's move on. <laughs> it's basic. Yeah, well, yeah. That's, that's the problem. This is why he says that mathematical philosophy is necessary because a mathematician just takes certain things as basic. And he says, of course, some things have to be basic because we can't just keep driving back forever. As a practical matter, we have to stop our explanation somewhere. But as mathematical philosophers or as philosophical mathematicians, we should push that back as far as possible. So what are our most basic, what basic principles are we left with? The concept of succession? It's basically Piano's axioms. Well, it's like, it's a reduced set of them, right? I think he's going to end up with two, right? Yeah. But there's originally five axioms, and this is on page four. Read them off, just so people have a sense of what we're talking about. Zero is a number. The successor of any number is a number. No two numbers have the same successor. Zero is not the successor of any number. And any property which belongs to zero, and also to the successor of every number which has the property, belongs to all numbers, which is the principle of mathematical induction. And of course, he's just dealing with whole numbers, or he calls them natural numbers, but he's including zero in there, which immediately, what do you mean there's no number before zero? Isn't a negative one before zero? Come on. But you can see, I mean, we've already defined Russell. He's trying to define numerals, these cardinal numbers in terms of sets of actual things, of trios in the world. So you can't have negative one things considered as counting actual objects. So being able to talk about negatives at all is something that is derived is much later. If you can set up the concept of numbers and then you can set up adding one and getting rid of one, then you can set up negative numbers. Yeah. Right. But you need this first. Right. You can sort of derive that from the successor principle. And I looked a little bit into the uh, Principia and just to get a, a grip on how slowly these things develop, Principia Mathematica has three volumes. And then there was like an additional one that he wrote later. But it takes until page 86 of the second volume to prove that one plus one equals two. (laughs) And Russell was just really, really good at the sort of the tongue in cheek humor. And immediately after it, he says the above proposition is occasionally useful. (laughs) All of this stuff is just so slow to develop. It's admirable that he got as far as he did. He even sort of acknowledges when he's talking about classes and stuff that the theory of classes isn't entirely self-contained. It's got a little bit of a hand wave about it. It's still not a 100% rigorous basis for natural numbers and such. I think he does a pretty good job. Well, we know that ultimately it's going to fail, right? Right. You can't give a completely logical foundation to arithmetic. Spoilers! Spoilers! Need some non-arithmetic notion. Sorry, non-logical notion to ground arithmetic. By chapter three, he finishes his analysis of Peano's axioms and says that it ends up that we can derive two of them, the one asserting that zero is a number and the one asserting mathematical induction, that is, 
Uh, if something is true of X, then it's true of X plus one. But how did you say that? Yeah, it's the successors. It's true of X. It's true of X plus one. Inheritable traits. Yes. Inheritable traits of numbers. You can define those two in terms of the other ones. I think the philosophically important point for me here was to get to the idea that he defines these numbers in terms of sets. So you might just reject that whole thing and say that's ridiculous. Say, no, numbers are pure mathematical entities, just like the Pythagoreans say. It's often hard for me. I mean, he's, I guess we can derive the notion of numbers from these notions of sets. So is that enough to say, here, I've given a derivation. Does that mean that the sets are more basic than the numbers? The fact that he's done that? Or is it just pointing out a correspondence? You could say the numbers are the more basic and sets are derived from those somehow. I think that numbers are things that we have some sort of sense of them, but a set, like a group of things, is something that people have an intuitive grasp of. The other thing is that you've achieved a greater level of generality and, and shown mathematics to be a special case of it, right? right? So it'd be like in any science, you're looking for the most general principles. And if you can show, you're essentially reducing one to the other in that case. Right. And his other criticism of Peano was not only just that, look, I can analyze his axioms and a couple of them are superfluous, but that they weren't actually rooted in the real world, like you're saying. In fact, the number 100, the number 101, 102, etc., those, that set, starting with 100, obeys all of Peano's axioms, right? Just define 100 to be equal to the symbol zero. Yeah. And it all works. Like, But no, we need whatever you call the number two to line up with the number of eyes that people usually have. Right. We need those symbols to hook up with things in the actual world. So you can't, the way he thought Peano was doing it, define them purely in terms of symbols and say the symbols are a world unto themselves. That just defeats the purpose that we have for mathematics, which is to support engineering, say, counting and building things. Well, I do appreciate that because it does keep me in video games and such. <laughs> But yeah, he basically says that the two axioms that he comes up with, they're assumptions and that math operates independently of reality and it's only by tethering the set of one, the set of all ones and the number one to one entity in the real world that it has any sort of function with regards to reality. Of course, with logic, in the last chapter, we get the idea that logical truths are true even if the world doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So they're completely untethered. And uh, you might ask, why do we need the notion of sets and talking about one-to-one -one correspondences between sets? Why can't we just count what's in there? And he, he has a quote here. This is in chapter two here. So he's talking about, we've got these bundles of different numbers of objects, and we don't have the concept of number yet. He says, how shall we decide whether two collections belong to the same bundle, right? Whether these are mm -hmm. both trios or both duos. The answer that suggests itself is, find out how many members each has and put them in the same bundle if they have the same number of members. But this presupposes we've defined numbers and we know how to discover how many terms a collection has. Right. We are so used to the operation of counting that such a presupposition might easily pass unnoticed. In fact, however, counting, though familiar, is logically a very complex operation. Moreover, it is only available as a means of discovering how many terms a collection has when the collection is finite. Our definition of number must not assume in advance that all numbers are finite, and we cannot in any case without a vicious circle use counting to define numbers, because numbers are used in counting. So it's not just a matter of like, I can go this, that, the next, and we just assign the numbers one, two, three, sort of arbitrarily, and of course we could use base eight or whatever. I mean, that seems like the intuitive. That's how we came up with numbers is counting. I don't know. What do you think of that? Because it seems like old counting systems, you could do one, two, three, many, Right? Isn't that whole how the cavemen would count? Yeah the, yeah. the concept of high numbers was... So it certainly doesn't presuppose the whole number system, the fact that you can count at all. 
So I don't know. That seems, at least uh, anthropologically, you could give an argument that some form of counting is basic. And he makes a, a reference to that. Well, psychologically it is, yeah. If, mm. But we're talking about logically here. So you can't use the psychological fact that counting is prior in this case because it already assumes number. We want to reduce the concept of number to something that doesn't involve that concept. Otherwise, we're begging the question. And that's where we get this similarity between classes. So I guess the choices are either try to pursue some route like this or just say it's just basic. It's just a priori basic. We have these concept of numbers, which is exactly the thing that he uh, wants to discount, that he f- thinks he can give, like you were saying, this more general, like in the sciences, explanation of uh, number in terms of, you know, of course, there are lots of other properties of groups besides their one-to-one correspondence with other groups. So if we can say this special property of actual things in the world and we can get number from that, then we're, uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's a good example of a generalization. <laughs> that sounds more like a type of abstraction than... Uh, yeah saying counting is a special case of some larger operation which doesn't necessarily involve numbers. I think the more important part of this argument here is just that he wants to leave in there the notion of infinity. And he spends a couple chapters talking about different types of infinity, I think using stuff from Cantor, not really his own work, but which were some of the most interesting chapters, even though those are not among the ones that were assigned for this particular, or not as philosophically relevant, I think. Yeah, and you can't just get rid of infinity. You can't found arithmetic and everything you need to do if you get rid of infinity. Thanks for listening to this Partially Examined Life episode preview. If you're enjoying it so far, you can purchase the full episode in the music section of the iTunes Store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store. For unlimited access to our back catalog, you can become a PEL citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash membership. Membership also includes access to discussion groups with other listeners, as well as ad-free versions of current episodes and a host of other bonus content, all available from a single, convenient feed that you can use with a variety of podcast apps.